The scripture reading says that it's from Hebrews chapter 12, but I'd actually like to read a portion that leads into that. Um, Just follow along with me. Turn to chapter 10, if you would. I'm not going to read everything up to there, so just so you know. And let's start in verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now chapter 11, first couple verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. Sorry, commendation. There's a big difference there. Now, I'd like to skip down to the end of chapter 11 to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And then chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Pray with me, please. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thankful for the opportunity to worship you as brothers and sisters, your children. And we ask that you would be present here among us to teach us your word, that we might know you better, that we might become better servants of yours, better lovers of you, that we might be encouraged in our faith, to run with endurance the race that you have set before us. For your name is worthy, worthy of our fullest effort, worthy of our greatest devotion. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in this time in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. It's a delight to be back again to worship with you folks. Um, if I met you before, it's a great time to have, and I'd love to meet you after the service. When I was in high school, I ran on the track team, and I wasn't a long-distance runner. I was a hurdler, and I wasn't all, all that good. We had a really small track team. Football was the thing at my school, so we had a half dozen or so people on the track team. It was pretty miserable, but but I was one of the better runners, and so I made it to the, I was from Pennsylvania, made it to the Western Pennsylvania semifinals. Um, and so there weren't very many 
runners left for the coaches to work with. So, you know, normally during this, this season, you could sort of slack off and the coaches didn't really care. They couldn't really keep tabs of you. But now I couldn't. It was just me, one other guy, and the coach. So he was running us really hard. And I'm running the 300-meter hurdles. It's almost a whole lap around the track. And, uh, you know, I really wasn't in shape because I was, you know, slacker. And so he kept running us the same event over and over again. And I'm, okay, I, I ran it. I'm going to go run it again, run it again. About the fourth time in, I got halfway around the track and I just collapsed. I just, I couldn't do it. My, my legs were on fire. My lungs were burning. It, it was too much. I just, I couldn't go on. And you have that strange experience of you're trying to breathe, but you can't breathe. You're, you're, you're trying to get up, but you can't get up if you've ever had that experience. And then the coach came over and, you know, comforted me and helped me up, and it was fine. I took a little break. But sometimes I think, and maybe you shared this experience, that the Christian life feels like that sometimes. It feels like we're running hard and we just can't go on. We just collapse. I can't do it. Why does the Christian life have to be so hard? One of the, there's a guy who wrote a book by that, by that title, Why Being a Christian Has to Be So Hard. And in it he says one of the biggest problems today is the problem of discouragement. And I think that's true. Let's face it, it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to resist the temptation of sin that is everywhere around us. Not just the people around us, but the spiritual forces that desire to bring us down. It's hard to fight against our own sinful natures, isn't it? It's hard to know that there are people in the workplace who, they really don't like the fact that you're a Christian. And they hate you just for that. If you've ever had that experience. Or perhaps a family member who thinks you're just a little too radical with us religion stuff. It's tough to be a Christian So it's easy to get weary and discouraged. So how, brothers and sisters, do we endure and live a faithful, successful, fulfilled Christian life? Well, in our text today, we're going to see how the author of Hebrews is addressing just such a question to a beaten down and discouraged people who are ready to give up and throw in the towel. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, will teach us that God does not just command us to endure. He provides means for us to endure. And so we'll see that because we are weak and easily discouraged in our Christian life, we must run with endurance by embracing God's provisions for perseverance. So that's our big idea. Because we're weak and easily discouraged, we must run with endurance by embracing God's provisions for our perseverance. So before we dive into chapter 12, what I'd like to do is just take a few moments, and this is the first sub-point in your outline that's in your bulletin, to look at the background and the context of this passage. Whenever you jump into the Bible, you never just want to open it up and start reading something without understanding the book, the context of what's going on. It's super important. This is a historical book, has a historical setting. We need to think about that briefly. Well, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians in the first century who were being pressured to revert back to Old Covenant Judaism and to reject faith 
in Jesus Christ. Jews who had not come to faith in Christ were enticing them, saying, come back. You don't need this new Jesus thing. Why are you turning your back on the traditions? Why are you turning your back on the ancient faith of Moses? We have animal sacrifices. We have the priests who minister in the temple. This is what God wants from you. He doesn't want all this new Jesus stuff. So they were being pressured to cave in. And what this book is designed to do is to minister to them, to give them strength to resist that pressure. And so the challenge is present throughout the book for them to continue in their faith and not to turn away. Just a couple of examples. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And then if you have your Bible and you're at Hebrews 12, flip over to chapter 13. Now let's just read a couple verses here. Verses 9 and 10. Where he says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Those who are in the old system that says there's certain foods you can't eat. Those who are in the old system that says you come to the tent, the temple, with sacrifices and blood. Those people do not have the right to eat from the altar that we come to. And then he says in verse 13, Therefore, let us go out to him, to Jesus, outside of the camp and bear the reproach he endured. As Jesus was rejected by the Jews, so he's saying, you, Jewish brothers and sisters, should expect to be rejected by them. Come out from that old system. So, the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't fall back into the old obsolete system and turn away from God's work in Christ. And actually, this conflict with Judaism was huge in the early church. You may remember in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, the apostle Paul and Barnabas come down from Antioch because there's a big ruckus in the church. Jewish believers are saying, no, 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 these Gentiles, they need to keep the law of Moses. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep the food restrictions. They need to bring animal sacrifices. They need to keep Moses' law. And there's a whole big conference, the Jerusalem Conference, Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, that deals specifically with that question. Or consider the book of Galatians. That entire book is about the conflict that Jewish Christians were having with Gentile Christians. And do Gentile Christians need to keep the Mosaic Law? It's a huge issue in the early church. So, to sum this up, the primary purpose of the book of Hebrews is to counteract the enticing allure of that old system by painting a glorious picture of Jesus Christ as the fulfiller of all those old covenant rituals. If you, if you ever seen, uh, back from my days, uh, in physics classes, we had a a sine wave. You know what a sine wave is? Kind of goes up and down like this. This is kind of how the book of Hebrews goes. It has two things going on. We're going to say how amazing Jesus is. It's like the up part of the sine wave. 
And then we're going to encourage you not to turn away from him. That's the down part. So he keeps oscillating back and forth. Jesus is amazing. Look how much better Jesus is than the revelation that Moses gave. Look how much better Jesus is than the angels of the Old Testament. Look how much better Jesus' sacrifice is than the sacrifices of the animals. And on the downslope, he encourages them, don't fall away. Don't turn your back. Don't neglect that promise that you've been given. Keep on. That's what this book is getting at. It's back and forth. Jesus is awesome and, and uh, don't fall away. So here's the big point, the big idea. And I'd like to, for all of us to say this together. What is the main point of the book of Hebrews? It is this. Jesus is better. So what's the main point of the book of Hebrews? Jesus is better. Amen. Thank you. Well, that brings us to our passage here, where the author is appealing to the readers to persevere, to run with endurance. So how do you move a discouraged person? How does a person who feels defeated and weak find strength to go on? What resources has God provided for us? And this brings us to our second main point, which is that God is calling us to run with endurance by embracing God's provisions for perseverance through champions of faith. Now look at verse 1 in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, he equates the Christian life to a foot race. Not a sprint, not what I was doing in high school, but more like a marathon, a long-distance event. And in this event, there are spectators. Now, this word is actually the word for martyrs, which over through time became associated with those who, who die for their faith, but it literally just means a witness. And these folks are witnesses in two ways. In in one way, in the, in the illustration of a sporting event, you have people who are, think of a, a coliseum or an arena of some sort, where people are watching us, watching this event of our race. So they're witnesses in that sense. They're a great cloud of witnesses. By the way, I've talked with people who, who have think that that is referring to the actual literal presence of spirits who float around us. That, you know, the, the dead saints who have gone before us are still kind of here. That's not what that's talking about. This is just a standard cultural way to speak of a large group of people who are watching. So don't use this verse uh, to, to, to appeal to the idea that, that there are spirits floating around us who are, you know, the dead saints of old. That's not what it's talking about. The other element of this that speaks of them being witnesses is that they are examples. They're examples to us. And that's why, if you notice in verse 1, the first word is therefore. Well, you know that old saying, right? Whenever you see a therefore, you've got to go back and find out what it's there for. So that's why I read the end of chapter 10. Because this is one of those down slopes on the sine curve. This is, this is the encouragement part, the, the, the warning, the exhortation. And it's continued over from chapter 10. So he gives them this amazing exhortation at the end of chapter 10. Chapter, chapter 10, to continue and not fall away, 
to endure, to persevere. And then he gives this example. The whole chapter full of examples. Abel and Abraham and Noah and Moses and these great men of old who walked by faith. And then he comes back and he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance. Many, many faithful witnesses have gone before us. Saints who have looked to the promises of God, endured hardship and deprivation, resisted temptations for an easy, comfortable, trouble-free life. And they encourage us, they're an example to us to stoke the cooling embers of faith in our own souls. And you know, brothers and sisters, this isn't just true for the saints from the Old Testament. This is true for every age. How many faithful believers have lived in our age, in the last thousand, fifteen hundred, fifty years? Today, faithful men and women who are an example for us, who are a gift to us to encourage our souls. Listen to this as you think about the idea of, of reading Christian biographies or We're learning about the great men and women of faith who have gone before us. This is what John Piper says. He says, Biographies have served as much as any other human force in my life to resist the inertia of mediocrity. Without them, I tend to forget what joy there is in relentless, God-besotted labor and aspiration. That's pretty profound. You see, that's the point. We don't just entertain ourselves with stories of David in the lion's den and and Moses crossing the Red Sea and all of these things and even men of faith from the current Christian age. We don't just entertain ourselves. They're a lesson to us. They goad us. They're witnesses who say, you can do it too. That's what they say to me. That's what they say to you. And this is talking about there being a race here. They're they're encouraging us to remove hindrances in our lives so that we can run the race. Now, this idea of the Christian life being a race is all over Scripture. Can Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And then he also says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So, brothers and sisters, your Christian life is a marathon, whether you know it or not. And this race is a long-distance event and something that we are to take stock of how we do it. By doing what? He says... Laying aside every weight and sin. So we got two things going on there. Now, this is a picture that would have made sense to that culture at the time. Eliminating superfluous weights and snares so that you could run. Now, in the ancient world, when they had events, especially in the Greco-Roman culture, they would run unencumbered, and, and I mean entirely unencumbered. That's all we'll say about that. But, you know, here's, they were serious about winning their events. 
They did not want to weigh themselves down in any way. This reminds me once I heard a, um, a story about uh, some charity that was having an event to raise, raise money. And it was a, a sporting event, and they had just a regular guy who was going to race an Olympic sprinter. So you think, well, that's not going to be entertaining at all. How is that going to raise any money? Until they pulled the swim fins out and put them on the Olympic runner. And they said, now you have to run with these swim fins on. And the other guy just gets to run. So, of course, the Olympic, the Olympian just lost, completely lost. He was totally encumbered. I mean, can you imagine what that would have looked like? Hilarious. So, he was running encumbered. And in our picture, we have two swim fins, right? We have weights and sin. Well, sin is obvious. Sin is anything that is just a direct violation of God's will. And obviously, the Christian life is not about being okay with sin. We see, sin is insidious. And I think that's why he uses this second term, weights. What are weights? Because they seem to be a contrast with sin. Well, weights, I believe, are anything that is not necessarily essentially sin, but is nonetheless a distraction that slows us down in our race, like the swim fins on this guy. Think of the parable of the sower that Jesus says in Matthew 13, 22. He talks about the sower going out to sow, and he throws his seed down, and it springs up in various types of ground. And he goes on to explain about the, the ground that is choked out by the, the weeds. And he says that represents cares, riches, and pleasures of life. It's not necessarily wrong to have cares. It's not necessarily sin to have riches. It's not essentially uh, iniquity to have pleasures of life. But when those things that are secondary become primary... In our lives, they're weights. They slow us down. They hinder us from running. There's so many ways that we can be distracted. But one of God's provisions for us, brothers and sisters, is that we could look at other believers who do this better than we do. These champions of faith. Let me give you one example. Think of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is one example of the great cloud of witnesses that cheers us on. From an early age, he structured his life around the determination to bring the gospel to the lost, dark nation of China. Now, in his days, in the mid-1800s, the gospel had gone forth. The missionary movement was, was going strong, and people had penetrated into China, but not inland. They were only in the coastal areas. And he said, this is a whole continent full of people in there. We have to go in there. And he said, that's what I'm going to do. So he could have stayed at home in England and become a pharmacist, just like his father. He could have had a very successful, lucrative, comfortable career. But that's not what he did. He, what he did was he went and he lived in a coastal city and he worked with his uncle to learn medical skills as his uncle was working with the poor people in that area. His uncle was a doctor. Because he knew he could use those medical skills in China. And he trained himself to live by trust in God and prayer since he knew that he would have to do that in China. 
Now listen to this. In 1851, at the age of 21, 21 years old, he got on a boat. He left behind the woman he had grown to love because she would not come with him to China. And he went there by himself. Wow. He he had a hard time there. He had a hard time learning the language. He was often destitute and hungry, depressed, afraid. But Taylor persisted in God's call and spent the rest of his life in China. He could easily have pursued a prosperous and easy career. But he, he exchanged all that for the idea of holding out the gospel to inland China. Now, you may hear that and you may say, that's crazy. I can't do that. Maybe God's not calling you to go to inland China. Maybe he is, but probably he's not. This guy's race was hard. His race was harder probably than yours is and what God's calling you to. But that's not the point. The point isn't to be Hudson Taylor. The point is to say he saw the glorious merit of Christ And he said, I'm going to live for that. I'm going to structure my life around that. That's important to me. The race is hard. The word translated race here in verse 1 is agona. It's where we get the word agony. It's a struggle. Well, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what in your life right now represents a weight in your race of faith. What permissible but yet distracting activity in your life is cooling the embers of faith in your soul and not stoking them? Maybe God is calling you to greater faithfulness in how you raise your children or how you love your neighbors Maybe God is calling you with greater faithfulness with your finances. Whatever it is that's in your life that is a distraction to you, time, money, passion is sent towards those things, and God gets the scraps. That's the kind of stuff right here that God is calling you to rethink. This is the kind of stuff in your life and in my life that we need to rethink. We are so easily distracted in this abundant culture. Amen? Television, golf, entertainment, fishing. So much we can do. We can have our minds wrapped around stuff and not Christ. Well, God is calling us to run with endurance by embracing God's provision of encouragement through champions of faith. Well, next, as we move down to our second point, God is calling us to run with endurance by considering God's ultimate encouraging example of enduring faith, Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 2. How do we run with endurance? In verse 2, the first word is, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured something that was set before him. Verse 1 says that our race is set before us. Jesus had something set before him, the cross. 
So what this is saying is that Jesus' example of obedient life is the perfect example. He makes Hudson Taylor look like a miserable failure. Because he never sinned. He was tempted and tried in every way just like us, but he perfectly obeyed God and perfectly ran the race of faith, if you want to call it that. He was looking at the joy on the other side of the cross. He endured that cross. He thought little of the cost of suffering and sacrifice so that he could complete this amazing work of salvation. And now he's ascended to the Father and he's seated at the right hand of God, the place of preeminent glory and authority over all creation. And that's an amazing thing. Think about what Luke says in Luke 24 where he records Jesus' words. He said, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ suffer first before he entered his glory? And think about what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that it is to this you have been called, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow it. Brothers and sisters, our lives are lives of suffering. We are not greater than our master. He suffered, we will suffer. How are you going to endure that? How are you going to navigate that? We should not grow weary in enduring hardship because our Lord did not grow weary. Men hated him, they will hate you. And what's interesting here is this first word where he says looking. This is possibly the strongest way you could communicate a very intense, enduring gaze. Staring, almost. So something ongoing about us living our Christian lives, running this race by looking to Jesus. And what is he called here? He's called the founder and perfecter of our faith. Oh, this is an interesting expression. First of all, the word our is not there in, in the Greek. It's literally just the founder and perfecter of faith. But this word founder is a strange word. Um, it's translated in different uh, Bibles as author or leader. Now, what does it mean, the founder, author, or leader of faith? Well, it's the word archegos. It's used one other time in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2. Um, but it, you know, it means the idea of being an originator, an author, a founder, a, a pioneer, a leader, something like that. And so what he's saying is that Jesus is the leader and founder of true devotion and faith to God. And more than that, he's the perfecter of faith, the one who perfectly lived a life of faithful endurance. So this is how one commentator phrased it, okay? That Jesus is the one who blazed the trail of faith and the one who himself ran the race of faith to its triumphant finish. So Jesus is our perfect example of faithful endurance. The one who calls us to endure, Jesus, is the one who himself endured. My pastor at the church where I attend uh, seven or eight years ago, uh, came down with, was diagnosed with um, mouth cancer, tongue cancer. And he began to notice that he couldn't, couldn't enunciate his words. He was having pain in his mouth. So he went and he 
got checked out, and they ended up having to do a massive surgery. And so uh, even, even if seven years later, if you listen to him, they, they took a chunk of his tongue away and they, they cut into his neck and took all these lymph nodes out and all that kind of stuff. He still speaks with a lisp because a portion of his tongue is gone. Eating is very difficult. But during that time, I mean, imagine the recovery time of having a portion of your tongue removed. You can't eat. You're in recovery. He's fed by a tube for months, wasting away thinking he's going to die. But God mercifully delivers him. Maybe some of you have had an experience like that, intense physical suffering when you've come through it or you know someone like that. When my pastor, his name's Kurt, when somebody in our congregation is sick and they go to the hospital and I come in to minister to them as, as much as they'll, I'm sure they would appreciate that, who do you think they would rather have there with him? They'd rather have Kurt. Kurt has been there. Kurt has suffered. Kurt can come alongside them and say, I know what it's like. You can do it. God has not abandoned you. Keep on trusting the Lord through your sorrow and your suffering. Keep on running the race. And that cannot be easily discounted. You know how people, and I do this all the time, well, you just don't understand. You just don't understand. And sometimes people don't understand. Sometimes that's just a cop-out. But no one could say that to Kurt. He understands what it's like to suffer. This is what Christ is like. It's the reality of bringing an encouragement that cannot come from one who never lived it. This is Jesus. Jesus lives... A perfect life. But he endures incredible suffering. And this is why the book of Hebrews calls him our faithful and merciful high priest. He has lived it. And he calls us to it. He's not a distant God. He's Emmanuel. God with us. God doesn't just permit suffering in the world for no reason. There's lots of reasons and we don't know all of them. But he also embraces that suffering himself, does he not? The Son of God himself comes down and says, you know what, you're all suffering, I'm going to suffer too. Because he loves us. It's amazing. So run with endurance by considering God's ultimate encouraging example of enduring faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I need to, I need to do this last point quickly. The last point is, well, before I get to it, let me tell you how I feel about this, okay? I hear this sort of thing, and I think, okay, uh, uh, Hudson Taylor, David Livingstone, Augustine, these great men of faith who have gone before, and they're examples to us, and they are, and that's a blessing for us. And then above them is Jesus, the perfect example of faith, whose, whose life we're supposed to imitate. And honestly... There are times when I hear that and I say, that is not encouraging to me. That is not encouraging to me. That is discouraging because I know my own failures and I know how weak and defeated I can be and how discouraged I can be. And I think, God, is that what you're calling me to? To just see a bunch of people who did better than me and pull myself up, pull myself up by my bootstraps and just try harder? Is that what this is about? No, I don't think that's what this is about. Those are part of God's formula for our endurance, yes. But here's, I think, the key thing. This book, what do we talk about at the beginning of this book? 
Jesus is better. The whole point of this book is to put a gigantic target in front of the eyes of these believers, and that target is Jesus. And you look to him, and you run to him. He's the goal in the race, brothers and sisters. He's not just someone encouraging us on. He is the goal. We, we point our lives toward him because he is the reward. In the subtle and, and, and remarkably nuanced rhetoric of this book, I think that this author is saying two things when he calls Jesus the author and finisher. Of our faith. Yeah, he's the author and finisher of faith because he's the one who did it perfectly. But he's also the author and finisher of your faith and my faith. Because he who, he who began a good work in us, who opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that one himself who gave us faith perseveres in that faith for us. He finishes. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Thank you, Lord, because I can't do it. And that, my friends, is reason to rejoice. We ought to look to Jesus, the author and source of our faith, the completer of our faith. He's the goal. This, this exhortation, these few verses right here are the capstone of this entire book. Looking unto Jesus. That's why it's this strong, present thing. You're constantly, you're running, you're constantly looking unto Jesus. He does this in a couple other places in the book. In 3.1 he says, just, just, he just kind of bursts out, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. In 8.1 he says, now this is the main point of what we're saying. We have such a high priest who has gone into the heavenlies before us, Jesus Christ. He can't even contain himself. Do you, do you resonate with that? Is that something that, that you feel the same way? You cannot contain yourself because of the awesome majesty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. These Jewish believers were in danger of falling into an old, obsolete system that cannot save them because they did not fix their eyes on Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Are we simply saying that this is some kind of uh, uh, positive mental attitude kind of thing? Like, well, we just need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and think positive thoughts. That's not what this is about at all. Why does this work? Why does fixing our eyes on Jesus cause us to persevere? This is the reason. The Holy Spirit's job, who inhabits all of God's people, is to minister Christ to you. I would encourage you to read John chapters 14 through 16 and see how much Jesus talks about that the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Christ to you and through you. So it is not just our actions of trying to make our minds think about Christ a lot. That's, that's not the point. The point is that we are now getting our life in sync with the Holy Spirit who wants to work through us. It's not just a self, self-help mantra. Consider these verses in Isaiah 40. God is speaking to his discouraged people. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. He gives power to the faint. 
And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, yes, young people, even you, God gives you that strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What is alluring you away from the all-sufficient, soul-satisfying, power-granting Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're discouraged in your life, and I've gone through tremendous periods of discouragement recently, you know, coming out of seminary, hopeful to get into ministry, and now I'm just waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And it's hard. It's a hard place to be. And it's nothing compared to some of the trials that some of you are going through. But when we are discouraged, we need to access God's provisions for our encouragement. Listen to this. Whatever it is your temptation, whatever slowing you down or discouraging you in your, in your progress of waste, progress in your race, whether it's sin, some secret sin that nobody knows about but you know, or some permissible but distracting thing that nobody really knows how serious you are about that. Maybe it's college football or whatever. Make much of Christ. Focus hard on the glories of your Savior. And then listen to this, listen. Behold the power of a divinely enabled superior affection to beat distraction out of your life and give strength to weakened legs. Matthew Henry once wrote this, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for the pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. Let me read that again. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for the pleasures which, which, with which the tempter baits his hooks. Your race will only be successful if Christ Jesus is your glory. God has given us provisions. He hasn't just told us, go do it. He's given us provisions, power, examples. And he's calling you to run with endurance the race that he has set before you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the majestic and awesome Lord Jesus Christ whom you sent to be our Savior for you. Love us with an everlasting love. We thank you that you're not just a distant God who looks back at a suffering world and hems and haws about it. But you have an active plan, and that plan involves you sending your own Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to suffer for us. Thank you for what a tremendous privilege it is to be your people. May you strengthen us, Lord, and encourage us. We are weak and easily discouraged, and we need you. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. Amen.